Hey everyone, welcome back to the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here bringing you part two of the CHP overview of the history of Taiwan. I don't know if you just got hit with a couple pre-roll ads, but if you'd like to skip that line and get this program ad-free and do a good deed at the same time by supporting me with your subscription, you could sign up at Patreon or CHP Premium. Either one will get you new CHP shows weeks and sometimes a month early with no ads to dodge. Links are at the show notes. To quickly recap last episode, we went up higher than Felix Baumgartner to get a feel for the island's geological formation millions of years ago. We got the lay of the land, and most important, saw Taiwan's role in Austronesian civilization, and with that family of languages spoken as far west as Madagascar and as far east as Easter Island. We closed out the episode looking at a few close encounters that happened between visitors from the mainland, always embarking from Fujian province, or sometimes from Guangdong, and we looked at the well-worn stories and interaction that happened when visits across the Taiwan Strait occurred during the Three Kingdoms era all the way to the late Ming, from 230 to 1602. And despite everything that had happened over these 13 and a half centuries... Taiwan remained a pristine island, populated by the same people from the same tribes living there even before Fuxi and the Yellow Emperor, all speaking these many Austronesian languages. There had been some migration of Chinese from Fujian to Penghu in Taiwan, but even as late as the 17th century, the Chinese community on Taiwan didn't amount to more than 20,000 or so, and most of those who came from the mainland only stayed on Taiwan from spring planting to the autumn harvest, and the rest of the time was spent back home in Fujian. We left off with Chen Di and his Dongfan Ji, encounters with the eastern barbarians, where he remarked how he couldn't believe a place so close off the coast of China. How can they be so primitive and backward like they were? What native people thought of these Chinese visitors from across the strait? Not much has been recorded. In the three weeks Chen Di visited Taiwan, he didn't encounter any Han Chinese, but he saw plenty on Penghu. I didn't mention last time that uh, Zheng He made an unplanned visit to Taiwan in 1430 en route back to China. Strong winds blew his vessel ashore. In his report to the government when he got back, the great Muslim admiral mentioned mixing with native people and that he discovered a few good medicinal herbs and that there were no Chinese settlers to be seen anywhere. In this episode, we're going to focus on the 17th century. But way back in 1544, the Portuguese, they sailed right past South Taiwan, took one look at the shoreline and mountains, and named the island Ilha Formosa, the beautiful isle. And that Portuguese Formosa name had some staying power. More than 400 years later, even into my own childhood, growing up in the north suburbs of Chicago, Taiwan was still referred to regularly as Formosa. The interesting point here was that the Portuguese didn't stop and weigh anchor anywhere off Taiwan. They kept on going. And other than naming the island, they didn't have much of a Taiwan story. It would be their fellow Catholic nation of Spain who would establish a presence on Taiwan and try to hold on to it. The Spanish had established their East Indies enterprise in Manila in 1571. And from this base in the Philippines, 
they oversaw their regional trade networks. Besides the Spanish were the Dutch, the VOC, the Dutch East India Company. They began making themselves at home on Taiwan even before the Spanish did. There was an aborted effort by the Japanese in 1598 to conquer Taiwan. They were driven away by whatever aboriginal tribesmen they faced off against. In the early 1600s, is going to witness a lot of bloody confrontations between the Dutch and the Spanish. I don't know about now, but back then, these two nations hated each other. You've all heard of the Eighty Years' War, 1568 to 1648. It was fought mostly in Northern Europe, but over in Asia, the belligerents went at each other whenever they could. Basically, it was the Protestant nations, the Dutch Republic, England, Scotland, France, against the Catholic nations of Spain, Portugal, and the Habsburgs. The Dutch were latecomers to Asia. By the end of the 16th century, they had gained enough experience in their own part of the world to feel bold enough to follow the Portuguese, Spanish, and English to the South China Sea. The Portuguese had cut them out of the spice trade in Europe, so this notion of Dutch ships sailing to the East Indies, well, out of necessity, got a lot of traction real fast. Thanks to some inside information stolen from the Portuguese, the Dutch were able to get a head start as far as where to go in East Asia and what to expect, trade routes, when to go. Dutch ships started sailing at once, and so chaotic was the trade in its initial years, late 1500s, early 1600s. The moneyed classes with gilder signs in their eyes convinced the government to grant them a good old-fashioned monopoly to keep the China trade organized with Maximum returns for all concerned. So this Dutch East India Company, or VOC, was now competing head-to-head with the British and Spanish East India Companies. They came in hard and forced their way right into the middle of all that was going on. And they were quite bold in the demands they made to local China authorities to grant them trading privileges along the China coast. This whole matter of European traders showing up unannounced all over the China coast from Zhejiang, south to Guangdong, in the earliest decades of the 17th century, well, this was still a relatively new thing. It took some time for the Chinese side to figure these people out and to begin to organize some semblance of a strategy about how to control them and at the same time explore potentially lucrative trade opportunities with these newcomers from far away. The Spanish, Portuguese, English, and Dutch They all attempted to cut deals with local China officials, and whenever possible, they would try to block or inhibit each other's trading rights and privileges. The China trade was a new thing for European sea merchants. So in these formative years, early 1600s, you could say the business transacted at many of the ports was a little volatile and often quite violent. And with all these European ships loaded with cargo, sailing to and from China ports... It turbocharged the whole pirate trade, which had been plaguing the South Seas on and off since the days of the Nanhai trade in Qin Shi Huang's time. In 1619, the Dutch established their trading base in Batavia. This is located where today's Jakarta is, on the island of Java in Indonesia. The Portuguese were in Macau, and the Spanish were in Manila. The British would have to wait to get their colony. From about the establishment of Batavia up to 1624, five years, the Dutch were quite antagonistic in and around the South China Sea. 
as I mentioned, as part of the Eighty Years' War, they purposefully went after Portuguese and Spanish vessels wherever and whenever. They even fought a two-year war with the Portuguese right on their home turf in Macau and tried to seize the enclave from them. This was in 1622. Failing at that, the Dutch set sail for the east, first attempting to set up a base in Jingguan-o in Hong Kong across the harbor from Chai-wan. Qing soldiers chased them away, and the winds blew the Dutch next to Penghu. They quickly established a base in Makong, today the capital of Penghu County, located on the main island in the chain. And from this forward base, they were well-positioned to shoot across the strait to trade with Chinese merchants along the Fujian coast, and at the same time harass any trading vessels from certain Catholic nations that they were able to catch in their crosshairs en route to or from Japan and the Ryukyus. As soon as the Dutch settled in Penghu in 1622, they wasted no time committing atrocities against the 1,500 Chinese settlers who they conscripted to engage in construction of the facilities there. More than 85% of them died when it was all over. By the following year, in 1623, the Dutch traders had managed to step on enough toes along the Fujian coast to get the governor to convince the Tianqi emperor to send an envoy to Ma Gong to tell the Dutch to vacate Penghu. And after politely refusing, a punitive expedition was sent that summer to dislodge the Dutch from their base. And after intense fighting that lasted into July 1624, the Qingback forces defeated the Dutch on Penghu and forced them to vacate. Part of the shakeout from all this was that the Dutch were given the okay to settle on Taiwan and to carry out trade with China. And when I say the Dutch, you know what I mean, the Dutch East India Company. So off to Taiwan they went in 1624, and right on the southwest coast in Anping County in the city of Tainan, They built their fort, which served as their headquarters and became a symbol of this period from 1624 to 1662, when the Dutch East India Company dominated the history and destiny of Taiwan. In May 1624, Martinus Sunk had been put in command just as everything was reaching its climax. And after they waded ashore, Sunk was made the first governor of Formosa, serving only one year, allegedly drowning off the coast in 1625. A couple things he did before leaving this world was to arrange for the construction of Fort Zealandia and to make a deal with the pirate, politician, Ming official, and admiral, Zheng Zhilong. Zheng Zhilong was the patriarch of the Zheng family. His eldest son was Zheng Chenggong, known in most Western history books as Koshinga. That Koshinga name was derived from the Hokkien pronunciation of one of his titles, Guoxingye. He was also born in 1624, as all this was starting on Taiwan. He was born near Nagasaki to a Japanese mother. More of Zheng Chenggong in a bit. Before Zheng Chenggong, there was Zheng Zhilong. And it was Zheng Zhilong who entered into an arrangement made with the Dutch in which he pledged his fleet services as a privateer to serve the interests of the VOC. And while he was at it, also enriched the pirate enterprise that he controlled. For a while, it was a beautiful friendship that both sides profited from. So in 1624, the Dutch started building Fort Zealandia, which will take about 10 years to complete. 
and then they would run their colony on Taiwan from this location. The Spanish in Manila followed the Dutch VOC to Taiwan. Fort Zealandia, again, was on the southwest coast. The Spanish set themselves up in the north of Taiwan. They first went to the easternmost tip of the island and established Cape Santiago, an hour east of Geelong. That location wasn't considered optimal, so they moved to Geelong to the west, and that's where they built their own fortress, and they called it Fort San Salvador. Not long after, in 1628, the Spanish constructed another base further west along the north coast, and this became Fort San Domingo, built right where the Danshui River emptied into the Taiwan Strait, just to the west of Taipei. And from these two main installations, between Danshui and Jilong, in the north of Taiwan, Spain projected its power in the region and harassed the Dutch however they could. The Spanish fortified their position, fought with and carried out diplomacy with the surrounding indigenous people, and fired on any Dutch ships sailing to or from Nagasaki in Japan. Despite its value as an outpost for Manila, Spanish Formosa, as this northern part of Taiwan was called, was treated as a kind of unwanted stepchild by the Captain General based in the Philippines. They were never really given sufficient support or resources to push back against a force as powerful as the Dutch. Nonetheless, in the mid-1620s, it was a fine perch from which to throw plenty of wrenches into Dutch trade-related endeavors. Spanish harassment of Dutch shipping, it finally got so bad that in August 1641, the VOC decided to assemble a strike force and sail north, engage the Spanish, and remove them as a threat. The Spanish army hadn't gotten this far in East Asia on their good looks alone. They were always a formidable opponent. And in this first battle of San Salvador in Chilong, they were able to beat back this first attempt by the Dutch to push them out of their stronghold. After regrouping at Fort Zealandia in the south, they went back for a second attempt, and for this second battle of San Salvador, the VOC assembled an armada of 41 ships manned by 369 Dutch troops, and this ended up being a six-day war. From August 19th to the 26th, the Dutch with their Aboriginal allies fighting on their side stormed the hill, breached the fort, and defeated the outnumbered Spanish defenders. And following this second battle, the Spanish were removed from Taiwan. And if the main purpose of Spanish Formosa was to serve as a base from which to harass the Dutch trading vessels, this fortification at San Salvador served its purpose. And into our day, if you visit Qilong and Danshui, There's a couple nice tourist attractions from this time that you can visit. There were already something like 25,000 Chinese residents and migrants in Taiwan. Since the Song, Chinese had been migrating in this direction. Most went to Penghu, but some also settled in Taiwan and the Ryukyus, of which Okinawa was the most important island. The actual population was always a moving target, but for the most part, the Chinese settlers from the mainland, amassed around the regions surrounding the Dutch and Spanish forts. While the Dutch were celebrating their victory over their hated Spanish rivals in 1642, the Ming Dynasty was just about getting ready to fall. Whatever big plans the VOC wanted to roll out in Taiwan, now was a good time. They watched as China transitioned from one dynasty to a new one, 
and they knew for the time being they would be left alone to do whatever it was they wanted to do on Taiwan. And besides, up to then, the fall of the Ming, Taiwan still wasn't a province of China. All the better as far as the VOC was concerned. Zheng Zhilong, while all this was happening between the VOC and Spanish forces, had recreated himself and went from being the head of the Shibachir pirate organization and scourge of the Ming Dynasty navy to the dynasty's new potential savior. Beginning in 1628, this legend of the South China Sea and Taiwan Strait defected to the Ming and from this act profited beyond his wildest dreams. Through the control of his vast trading fleet, the trade networks and sea routes he dominated, and all his countless revenue streams earned from piracy and profiteering, Zheng Zhilong was said to be the richest man in China. Once the ally of the Dutch, now Zheng Zhilong was accepting titles and riches from the Chongzhen Emperor to fight back against the Dutch. And the marquee event from this time was Zheng Zhilong's come-from-behind victory over the Dutch at the Battle of Liaolo Bay in October 1633. This was off the coast of the island of Jinmen. It was quite a resounding victory over the VOC and quite unexpected, despite the numerical superiority of Zheng Zhilong's ships. By now, there was quite a bit of concern amongst the Chinese inside and outside the government about how troublesome and difficult it was to defeat these navies led by European nations. Zheng Zhilong was hailed as the first Chinese military man to defeat the Europeans in battle and expel them after they had attempted to challenge China's sovereignty. Into the 1640s, Zheng was able to parlay this victory for the Ming Dynasty over the Dutch into even greater riches and glory and it will be this empire that he passes on to Koxinga later on. As I said, up to now, Taiwan was still not officially part of China. After the Ming Dynasty fell in 1644, Zheng Long saw what he thought was another opportunity with the new Manchu rulers. He surrendered to the Qing Emperor on November 21, 1646. Unexpectedly, however, his eldest son, Koxinga, Zheng Chenggong, though he refused to surrender to the Manchus, and he and all Zheng family members abandoned the patriarch and went on throughout the 1650s to carry out raids all up and down China's southeast coast in his never-ending mission to overthrow the Qing and restore the Ming. He had turned the city of Xiamen into this ultra-cosmopolitan regional trading entrepot that was visited by almost everyone plying those seas in those days, including pirates and all manners of profiteers. Without his family as part of the deal, Zheng Zhilong ended up living out his remaining years under house arrest. The Qing officials tracked down his wife and brutalized her. This was Koshinga's mother, who you recall was Japanese. The relationship between Zheng Zhilong was all downhill from there, and they ended up executing him in 1661 after his son, who considered his father to be a traitor, refused to surrender to the Qing. And before he walked over to the Manchu side, Zheng Zhilong passed his vast trade and naval empire to his son, Zheng Chenggong, and he became someone who had quite a number of legends ascribed to his life story. By some, he's worshipped as a deity. There are 
Zhengchenggong temples in Taiwan and China. We remember Zhengchenggong for his exploits throughout the 1640s and 1650s, being the last holdout, the last man standing up for the southern Ming emperor Yongli, fighting to reclaim heaven's mandate, or at least restore the Zhu family to power. The extent of the wealth he controlled, all the relationships, personal and diplomatic, that he had with people from Zhejiang to Guangdong, by all accounts made him a clear and present danger to the Qing dynasty. In popular Chinese history and in legends, Koxinga, I'll just call him Zhengchenggong, he's mostly associated with his mission to restore the Ming and for his kingdom on Taiwan. Prior to that, he was based in southern Fujian at the family stronghold in and around Xiamen. It was the outcome of certain historic events that led Zhengchenggong to pick up and move his entire family enterprise from its longtime Xiamen base to Taiwan, kicking the Dutch out of Taiwan in the process. The events that got the ball rolling began when the Qing authorities were getting fed up with Zheng Zhilong's repeated failures as an intermediary to try and get his son, Cheng Gong, to stop resisting. But years passed, and this wasn't going anywhere. And as I said, they executed Zheng Zhilong in 1661. Zheng Chenggong never wavered from his anti-Manchu stance, and he continued to thumb his nose at the Qing government and refusing all of their entreaties. A naval battle with the Qing in 1656 ended poorly for the Qing side. So poorly, in fact, Zheng Chenggong felt emboldened enough to attempt, in 1659, to sail up to Zhoushan, where the Yangtze River flowed out into the East China Sea, and from there, he planned to lead his navy upstream to Nanjing and to take the city. Once that was accomplished, the plan called for disrupting the Grand Canal traffic and to create economic chaos in the north while they slowly took over central China. Well, that was the plan. And Zheng Chenggong learned this lesson the hard way, but loose lips sink ships. He was so overconfident and talked a little too much and allowed his plans to become public knowledge. And this gave the Qing defenders plenty of time to launch a counterattack. Long story short, Zheng Chenggong's big plans to take over central China, starting with Nanjing, turned into a hasty retreat. His fleet of a thousand vessels and 130,000 men managed to escape to Fujian, mostly intact, but the Qing had beaten them, and Zheng Chenggong was thinking, oh, maybe the Chinese mainland was no longer the best place to keep his headquarters. In 1661, he decided to move the Zheng family empire from Xiamen to Taiwan. He knew the Dutch had been squatting there for 37 years, and the way Zheng Chenggong saw it, they would have to go. He felt that for all those years, the Chinese side had only indulged the Dutch by allowing them to operate from their Fort Zeelandia base in present-day Tainan. Zheng Chenggong intended to shake things up now. He had himself to think about, the Zheng family empire, not to mention the southern Ming emperor he was trying to restore. And this part of southwest Taiwan was the perfect place to establish his headquarters. If this meant war with the Dutch, so be it. While Zheng Chenggong strategized his takedown of the Dutch at Fort Zeelandia, 
the Qing government was being ruled by the Manchu O-Boy and his fellow regents, and they reached into their bag of old tricks and instituted another sea ban, or Hai Jin, just as the Ming Hongwu Emperor tried to do with disastrous consequences in his day, the minders of the new Kangxi Emperor called for another great clearance. In theory, by taking such drastic action, the Qing would be depriving the Jungs of their livelihood. The bulk of the Jung family income came from their operations up and down the China coast. This imperial edict forced everyone to burn their boats and their dwellings, all infrastructure, and move inland 50 kilometers. The penalties for disobeying the order and remaining in the clearance zone were draconian. If Zheng Chenggong's vessels weighed anchor anywhere along the East China coast during the long period of this great clearance, there was nothing there. It obviously affected their business operations, but it didn't ruin the House of Zheng. So this imperial policy, made up in Beijing, that was meant to deny Zheng vessels the convenience to plunder the Fujian coast, ended up causing death and misery to millions of coastal people caught up in this decision. Though the ports of China were important as trading centers, the Zhengs just shifted their business to Japan and amongst the Europeans in order to survive these extreme and long-lasting measures taken by the Qing. There were many examples where they suffered hardship from the policy, but again, it didn't vanquish them. We can't even guess what the numbers were of people who died directly and indirectly from this policy. But one thing was for sure, the Great Clarence led to a rather large migration of people from Fujian and Guangdong in the direction of Taiwan. Later on, there would follow more events that would lead to an occasional exodus of mostly Hokkien and Hakka migrants. Same in the Song and the Yuan, and we'll see all throughout the Qing, when everything starts falling apart, beginning in the 1840s, many of those coastal people who called southern Fujian and eastern Guangdong home, they bought a one-way ticket to Penghu or Taiwan. Meanwhile, at Fort Zealandia, or Castle Zealandia, as it was also called, commerce and trade dominated daily life. The Dutch colonial period on Taiwan is a rather well-documented and interesting history in and of itself. I hope my listeners in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and The Hague aren't too upset that I'm sort of glossing over this period and only speaking about events in broad strokes. But for the residents of Taiwan, the Chinese who had migrated there going back to the Tang and Song, plus all the recent arrivals, and of course the aboriginal people who had been living there since the times before the Great Pacific Migration, It was a predictably confrontational life under their Dutch colonial masters who were amassed in southwest Taiwan. There were violent and brutal pacification campaigns carried out by the Dutch against the indigenous people, most notably from 1635 to 1636. The Dutch were always fending off attacks from these native people who didn't like that they were squatting on their land. That was one aspect of Dutch colonial rule that never let up, the endless ups and downs of relations between the VOC and the many indigenous tribes affected by their presence. The way the colonialist handbook went, as soon as you got settled, you had to secure a revenue stream in order to fund the occupation. 
and the lowest hanging fruit was always taxation of the local populace. VOC taxation of those Chinese and native people was an issue that had led to an uprising in September 1652. A Chinese peasant army of anywhere from five to 15,000 people rose up in protest against the Dutch, thanks to Dutch successes in bringing many Aboriginal tribes over to their side. This rebellion was put down, and around 4,000 Chinese died by the time it was all over. These native people, mostly Plains indigenous people, at first allied with the Dutch and played a key role in fighting back against so many Chinese. All of this will change with the arrival of Zheng Chenggong, and we'll see they later turn on their Dutch allies. And that day had finally come in March and April of 1661 as the siege of Fort Zeelandia began. Swedish nobleman Frederick Coyette was the governor on Formosa, and he'd be the final one. Jun Chenggong's fleet assembled in Jinmen, just off the Xiamen coast. About 25,000 soldiers on board hundreds of vessels, big and small, all headed in the direction of Fort Zeelandia, with a stop in Penghu. These numbers vastly outnumbered what the Dutch had. They landed in present-day Anping County in Tainan. They stormed ashore and immediately took the smaller Fort Provincia that had been built just before construction of Fort Zeelandia, and it was more of an office than a fort. Although they fought bravely, the Dutch officers surely knew they weren't going to defeat the Chinese, who had home field advantage, superiority in numbers, and powerful weapons besides the bows and arrows most carried. Going back to his father, Zheng Long, and into the 1660s, the Zhengs had always stayed modern with the latest European canon technologies. They also made the most of the native people, attracting them to their side rather than choose the side of these Hongmaoren, as they called them, or red-haired men. Not in an affectionate way. But somehow, the Dutch were able to repel the Chinese forces. Zheng Chenggong's Plan A had been to storm the fortress and take it by brute force. That having now failed, he resorted to Plan B, which was to carry out a long, drawn-out siege. And that's what happened, and it lasted nine excruciating months. The men holed up inside the fort suffered all the unpleasantness associated with holding out during a long siege. Word of Fort Zeelandia's misfortune got back to Batavia, The governor immediately dispatched 12 ships and 700 soldiers to provide relief. Basically, Zheng Chenggong had set up a blockade that the Dutch relief ships tried to outrun, always failing to get through. All throughout the summer of 1661, as the siege dragged on and for months afterward, there were vicious and bloody confrontations in full view of the fort that were fought miles offshore. The invading Chinese forces, too. It was no picnic for them, either. Zheng Chenggong hadn't counted on a long siege, and his troops lacked the provisions they needed. They were in a better position than the Dutch inside the fort, but they, too, felt pain, mostly the hunger sort. Towards the end of 1661, a traitor amongst the Dutch snuck out of the fort one day and made his way to Zheng Chenggong's side. This man, a German named Hans-Jürgen Radis, for whatever reasons, 
gave the Chinese side a surefire way to breach the redoubt that would allow them to storm the fort and force the Dutch side to surrender. It was solid intel, and Jung's forces acted on it. The VOC traitor was true to his word, and in January 1662, the Chinese forces attacked. Facing the inevitable, the governor, Frederick Collette, surrendered to the Jungs, and by February, that was the end of Dutch colonial rule in Taiwan, at least in that part of the island. Those who had hunkered down in Fort Zeelandia were generously allowed to sail to Batavia. They had to leave behind all their inventory, which was substantial, same with about a million tails of silver. That went into Jung Chang Gong's coffers. Coyette and the others, despite their bravery and best efforts to stave off the Chinese attackers, were not treated very well by the VOC higher-ups who viewed their loss of Fort Zealandia as disgraceful. Coyette even served prison time for his loss. In the run-up to the inevitable Dutch surrender, there occurred such tales of woe for many of the surviving Dutch. Girls and women were taken as concubines or were captured and lived out their lives as slaves. Many of the captured Dutch prisoners were executed in brutal ways. I mean, you can't even imagine. In fact, all three sides, the native people from many different tribes, the Chinese who came from the mainland, and the Dutch. All three of these groups who had lived side by side going back to the 1620s, they often made and broke alliances with each other, and there was burning resentment all around, and no one trusted anyone, and the stories of torture and hunting each other and committing the most inhumane acts of defiling bodies and Sending these gruesome messages to each other was something that was playing out in the background throughout the Dutch colonial period. It went in all directions. Had events on the mainland in 1659 not led Jung Chung Gong to Taiwan, it's very likely the Dutch would have planted very deep roots there. And lacking some treaty with China, the Dutch might not have been so easy to get rid of later on. Remember, even though Taiwan was within China's sphere of influence, after all these years, it had never been made part of the empire. It had never been annexed. Right before the Dutch sailed away, Zheng Chenggong founded the Kingdom of Dongning. This would serve as the political entity that represented the interests of the Zheng Empire, which still included the restoration of the southern Ming Emperor Yongli onto his rightful throne. Dongning lasted from 1661 to 1683. On a map, it's quite small, only consisting of the southwest part of Taiwan, where the most developed area on the island was located and where the Dutch had built their headquarters. The Dongning kingdom also included Penghu, the trade and military empire managed by the Zheng family, was based here in this Dongning kingdom. The most important thing to know about this Dongning Wangguo was that the local indigenous people living in Taiwan, whether they wanted it or not, received their first coordinated injection of sinicization. Zheng policies enacted during the Dongning era by Zheng Chenggong and his son led to the introduction to the island of various aspects of Chinese culture. During this Dongning period, there were a number of very important benefits introduced from China to Taiwan that had a profound impact. 
This was mostly with respect to agriculture and mostly involved irrigation and agricultural technologies. As for the Dutch, in 1662, after being ejected from Taiwan, well, they went on to form an alliance with the Qing government, still led by the Oboi Regency, to assist them in defeating the Dongning Kingdom, now based on Taiwan. The VOC captains and crew caused a lot of grief for the Jungs, chasing them away from the mainland in 1664. The VOC wasn't one to give up so easy. With support from the Qing side, they were even able to resume trading operations from a Taiwan base, carrying out business from a brand new fort they constructed in Jilong, where Spanish Formosa was once centered. The Dutch base there only lasted a couple years, but during its time in operation, it served as a valuable port of trade for the Dutch East India traders. In the end, it was the native people, not the Jungs, who had forced them to leave Taiwan for good in 1668. The following year, in 1669, the 15-year-old Kangxi emperor pushed Oboi and the other regents aside and took control of the Qing government. The Jungs would remain enemies of the Dutch well into the 1670s and 80s. There was no love lost between these two sides, with all the bad blood spilled between them. The end of Zheng Chenggong came shortly after hearing about the fate of the final Southern Ming Emperor Yongli on June 1st, 1662, executed at the hands of Wu Sanhui. The execution of his father and brothers in Beijing also hit him hard. After all, they met their end due to his belligerent actions. Some scholars say Zheng Chenggong was already suffering from some kind of mental breakdown or degradation to his mental health, and hearing of the death of his emperor just broke his spirit. Zheng Chenggong ended up doing the Kangxi emperor a favor and died of malaria three weeks after the execution of southern Ming Emperor Yongli. He died on June 23, 1662, living all that life in only 37 short years. The history of the Zheng family fortunes begin to wane here. Taking over for his father as King of Dongning was Zheng Jing. He came out on top in December 1662 following a traumatic power struggle. He kept up the appearance of being devoted to his father's great cause of overthrowing the Qing and restoring the Ming, but his actions didn't match his words, and you could say he mostly tried to keep the status quo. With the passing of Zheng Chenggong, there were about 100,000 Chinese residing on Taiwan. A great number of them weren't sure about the new direction of Taiwan and picked up and went back to their homes in Fujian. And for this reason, for most of the 1660s, Zheng Jing enacted all kinds of policies that welcomed migrants from across the strait, and they came in droves, more than offsetting the ones who had returned to the mainland after giving up on their Taiwan dream. And throughout the 1660s and 70s, negotiations went back and forth between Qing negotiators and Zheng Jing. After all these years of talking led nowhere, a new character entered the story. This was Sherlong. I intended to get to him in this episode, but Sherlong and his showdown against what remained of this once great and mighty Jung family seafaring empire, well, by the powers vested in me, will be explored in part three. So I'm going to put the bookmark in right here, 
And then next time, we'll continue on with Shirlong, a milestone figure in the timeline of Taiwan history. And we'll look at all his achievements that he's remembered for. So I thank you all for listening. There's still a long way to go, and I hope you'll stay to the end. Once again, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from a much cooler but no less drought-stricken Los Angeles, California. May I cordially invite you to consider coming back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.